John 5, 1-14. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man, said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What do you do with an unwanted Christmas gift? Last week we opened our Advent season with a discussion of what do we do with unwanted Christmas gifts. Because specifically this year during Advent, we're discussing unwanted gifts, specifically the unwanted gift of Jesus. Because while we can all agree that Jesus is the gift of Christmas, in many ways he's an unwanted gift. And last week we talked about how Jesus is a king. And we don't necessarily want a king in our lives. We want to be the kings and queens of our own lives. We want to call the shots, decide for ourselves. We want to reign over our petty little kingdoms. We don't want a king who's come to reign over us. A king to whom we have to submit. So that makes Jesus a gift, but in that way an unwanted gift. Because it's the gift of a king. But his kingship isn't the only thing that makes him an unwanted gift. This week, we have to face the fact, friends, that none of us really likes change. Naturally, we resist change, even when it becomes so obviously necessary in our lives. Now, I've made this confession before. You know how we all bring things with us into marriage? You know, you come into marriage with baggage with habits, with proclivities, and some of them are maybe not so attractive. Well, one of the things that I brought into my marriage was my pillow. Now, you see, my pillow wasn't just any pillow. This was a pillow that I had had for years and years when I was a youth pastor. And I took this pillow with me on so many retreats with junior hires. And what you do on retreats with junior hires at night is that you pummel them mercilessly in pillow fights. And so that pillow had seen quite a bit of violence in its day. To the point that when I got married, the outside of the pillow had actually at some point disintegrated. And really the pillow was just a bunch of batting that I put in a pillowcase. 
and I slept on it. And, and Leah hated it so much that I had to make sure that the opening of the pillowcase faced away from her so that she wouldn't have to see the thing that I dared to still call a pillow. I mean, in fact, there was one time that I climbed into bed at night and I put my head down and I said, this isn't right. And I looked, she had subtly tried to replace my pillow with a new pillow, which I promptly got out of bed, found where she'd thrown away my old pillow, got it, brought it back so that I could sleep on it. Now, now, friends, it was obvious that I needed a new pillow. And in fact, I probably would have been happier. She would have been happier. I probably would have been happier and more comfortable, but I resisted change for a long time. I know my pillow is a ridiculous example, but the fact is we all have these pillows in our lives. Those things that we hang on to that really aren't working so well anymore, but we cling to them. The things that really aren't attractive, and it's really obvious that we need to change or we should change, but we, we stubbornly hold on. You, you know, the fact is we just resist change. In, in fact, studies have shown that this is true not just in the pillow areas of our lives, but in more serious areas of our lives. Each year, roughly 600,000 people in America have heart bypass surgery. And these people receive a message at that point. Change or die. Change or die. Because they're told that the heart bypass surgery that they're getting is only a temporary fix. They need to change their lifestyle. You have to change your diet. You need to quit smoking and drinking. You need to exercise. You need to de-stress. Or you're going to die. And you'd think that having a near-death experience and then getting a really serious warning would cause you to change. But friends, studies have shown that two years after heart surgery, 90% of heart patients have not changed. Because we resist change. Even when the need for change is so painfully obvious, the human condition is that we resist change change. And friends, that's exactly what makes Jesus such an unwanted gift. Because Jesus has come to change us. To receive the gift of Jesus at Christmas is to accept the gift of change. And we don't necessarily want change even when that change might be beneficial. And that's what we see in today's account. You know, the the narrative unfolds by the, the pool of Bethesda In Jerusalem, and it says the blind, the lame, the paralyzed had gathered. And friends, why did they gather around this particular pool? Why did they gather there? Well, the explanation is in verse 4. So look at your text. The explanation for why they gathered at the pool of Bethesda is right there in verse 4. And what does verse 4 say? Nothing? You'll notice that there is no verse 4 in your text. Your text goes from verse 3 to verse 5. So what happened? Was Kevin so exhausted from walk through Bethlehem that he forgot to put verse 4 in today's text? So, okay, so we now have two problems. First, the problem is we need to understand why they were all gathered around this pool. The second problem we need to understand is what happened to verse 4. So the good news is these two problems are related. Now, unless you're using the King James Version, the King James has verse 4. So what's going on here? Well, again, 
Kevin didn't forget it, but in fact, if you're using one of the Bibles, the Pew Bibles, or maybe if you're using a Bible app, what you'll notice in the Pew Bibles is there's a little footnote. There's a little letter, and down the bottom of the page is a little footnote to tell you what's going on. Your Bible app probably has a little link at the end of verse 3 that if you click on it, it gives you the explanation for what's happening. So the ESV, which is in your pews, it has a footnote, and we actually have the footnote, Samuel, that reads that some manuscripts insert that the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, they were waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons to the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So there you go. Am, am I crackling? Is that me? Hang on. That didn't help. All right. See, I need a change. I need a new mic, and I'm resisting change. So there you go. So verse 4, that footnote gives you the explanation for why the sick were gathered at the pool. So, but why is it down in a footnote, and why is it, why don't we have a verse 4? Well, we need to remember, just as an aside here, so you understand what's happening when we come to the text and you see something like this, that the New Testament and the Gospel of John, which is what we're reading today, was originally written in Greek. And when the New Testament was written, they didn't have printing presses or copy machines. And so, if you wanted another copy, all those copies were made by hand. And sometimes in the copying process, obviously, mistakes could be made. Sometimes additions or subtractions to the text might happen. Now, that doesn't mean that the biblical text that we have today is kind of like a bad game of telephone where somebody whispered something and the next person who whispered it, the next person And you get to the end and it looks nothing, it sounds nothing like what it started as. That's not what the Bible is for us. Because on the contrary, today, we have so many of these handwritten copies of the New Testament that we can compare them one to another and we can determine with an incredibly high degree of confidence when and where changes occurred in the copying of the text. So we have an incredibly high confidence that what we have today is what was originally written. In fact, New Testament scholars say that the New Testament text is 99.9% free from any real significant concern. Friends, the Bible is actually the best attested to and certain document of ancient antiquity. So as we sang these ancient words of our faith, they were handed down to this age. And we have great confidence that these ancient words which are ever true are not just ever true. The words that we have in our translations are the words that were originally written. Because if you found a handwritten Greek manuscript that said one thing and another handwritten manuscript that has said another, you could compare them to all of the other copies that are in existence. And you could also take and go, well, what are the oldest copies? What are the copies that are the most reliable copies? And it, you can, by comparing them, you can determine what the original likely said. Now, for example, our very early English translations of the Bible, like the King James, which was written, which was published in 1611, since that was published, we've gotten more, we've found more Greek manuscripts, earlier ones, better ones. And when we compare all the copies, the oldest and most reliable copies don't have what the King James calls verse 4. So what like makes the most sense is that the words of verse 4 were a later insertion 
into the text. One of the copyists was copying the text, and as the gospel traveled further away from Jerusalem, fewer and fewer people would have known about this pool. They wouldn't have understood the meaning of the statement in verse 7. So there was a copyist who probably wanted to be helpful and make sure that future readers like you and I would understand what was happening in the account. So he goes, ooh, better, better make sure I explain and put a little comment in there. And we can look and say, well, but that wasn't original. This was clearly an addition later on. So the elusive verse 4 was likely not part of what John wrote. It was a footnote that we now have in our text as a footnote. Because it's not inspired text, but it's an explanation that a copyist offered us so that we can understand what's happening. But the text that we actually have, we have an incredible degree of confidence to be able to say, this is what was written because we have so many copies to compare. So we can tell you that this is a footnote and not what John wrote for us. But it's a helpful footnote because otherwise you and I would have no idea What's going on at the pool that day? Why are all these people sitting around here looking to have a pool party? And they're all sitting there because the people of Jesus' day viewed this pool as a healing sanctuary. Now, now such places weren't uncommon in antiquity. The idea that there could be a place or a pool or a shrine that might have healing power was a widespread idea. And as such, the paraplegic and the other sick had gathered around the pool in hopes that when the the water was stirred, they would be the first one in and they would be healed. And that's what's going on here. But this man, did you hear? He'd been sitting by the pool for quite a while. This man had been paralyzed and sitting by the pool for 38 years. 38 years is a long time. Friends, 38 years for us puts us back in 1984. 1984, the original Apple Macintosh personal computer first went on sale. 1984, the Summer Olympics were held in Los Angeles and the Soviet Union boycotted. In 1984, 38 years ago, fast food company Wendy's launched its famous TV ad campaign in which actress Carla Peller asks, I knew some of you were over 38. 1984, there was a brand new video game out, Tetris. How many hours I spent playing that one? And in 1984, Alex Trebek first became host of Jeopardy. 38 years is a long time. There are a few of you here in this room who haven't been around yet for 38 years. I'm no longer one of them. But this paraplegic, had, in today's story, had been sitting by the pool for 38 years years. And he'd been begging from people and taking his chances on being healed. And friends, it wasn't an easy life that this man lived for 38 years. I mean, a couple of years ago, there was a a man by the name of Dr. Dwight Peterson, and he spoke about this text to a whole gathering of professional biblical scholars. And the most fascinating part of Dr. Peterson's talk is that Dr. Peterson's in a wheelchair. He's also a paraplegic. And so when he spoke about this story, he talked about the tremendous struggles of paraplegics now in the 21st century. How much more were the challenges of a paraplegic in the 1st century? Uh, Again, this man considers mobility. He either had to be carried by others or drag himself by his arms through the dirty streets of Jerusalem. 
You know, because of his condition, he was an outcast socially because the common Jewish understanding was that suffering and sickness was a result of sin. So people would have assumed that this man was a horrible sinner and deserving of his suffering. And so he probably was socially isolated. And moreover, Dr. Pearson brought up the fact that this man would have been ostracized because of his personal hygiene. The paraplegic's only means of supporting himself would have been begging. He would have daily had to humiliate himself. He was completely dependent on the charity of others. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and looks at him and says, do you want to be healed? On the surface, this stands as maybe the most ridiculous question in the Bible. You almost expect the paraplegic to look at him and go, are you kidding? But that's not what he says, is it? Jesus says, do you want to be well? And how does the man respond? In verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water's stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. I mean, Jesus asked him, Do you want to be healed? You've been sitting here by the pool for a long time. Do you want to get better? And the paraplegic never actually directly answers Jesus' question. He complains. He makes excuses, but he never says, yes, I want to be healed. Because, friends, change is hard. I mean, think about this paraplegic's life. It was undesirable and it was difficult, but if he was healed, everything's about to change. He's now going to have to enter mainstream society after 38 years. He's going to need to get a job and go to work. He's going to have to give up the security of the life that he had known for 38 years by the pool. He'd have to shed his identity as a victim and be responsible for himself. To be healed meant significant change. And friends, we don't like change. Even when our situation is utterly uncomfortable and downright undesirable, oftentimes we would still choose it over change. Because change is hard. You know, there's there's often a freedom and an ease in bearing labels or living as a victim because labels can give us an excuse for not even trying to change. In fact, our suffering can make us feel justified and even superior to those other people who just don't get it like we do. And our status as victim legitimizes our quest to elicit the pity of other people. I mean, friends, it's always easier to make excuses and to claim to be a victim or to hide behind labels than to change. Now, I'm not minimizing any struggles. They're real, they're, they're heavy, and they're painful. But the question that Jesus is asking him and the question that Jesus is asking us all is in the midst of whatever struggle you're facing currently, in the midst of whatever disadvantage from which you come, do you want to be healed? Do you want to get better? Do you want to change? And friends, it's a good question. It's a good question because when you think about it, we've all known people that don't really seem to want to change. They don't seem to want to be healed. You might have a friend, and if you ask them, do you want to be healed? They probably say yes, but you watch her life, and it screams no. You'd assume that his constant complaining means that he wants to change, but you know what? He equally just might like to complain and might even like the sympathy and attention. That the complaining draws. 
Complaining is easier than changing, and our conditions can become a comfortable crutch. Do you want to be healed? It's the question that Jesus asks the man today, and he's asking us today. Because ever since the Garden of Eden, our human tendency is to hide from taking responsibility for our actions and instead point the finger. Remember, Jesus shows up and he says, Adam, what did you do? It was a woman. Eve, what did you do? It was a snake. We're so quick to hide and to point the finger and to blame others. Just like this man, I can't change. I have no one to put me in the pool when the water stirred. Other people cut in front of me. I'm just a victim. Friends, but do you want to be healed? Are you willing to change? So Jesus asked this man by the pool after 38 years, are you still seeking to be healed or are you just content to live your life sitting by the pool in what you've always known? Do you still want to change? And friends, the good news, the good news is that Jesus is not limited by our lack of wanting or our lack of faith. Because what does Jesus do in verses 8 and 9 here? Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and he walked. Friends, Jesus is never limited by our lack of faith. Nor can Jesus be manipulated to heal anyone by our expressions of faith. Of all the sick people around the pool that day, Jesus only sovereignly chose to heal one man. There were many sick. Why that one man? We'll probably never know why. But what we know for certain is that this man wasn't chosen to be healed because of his great desire, nor was he chosen to be healed because of his great faith in Jesus. In fact, did you notice in verse 13, when the man was asked, who healed you? He had no idea. So it wasn't that this was a man of great desire or great faith and he just wanted it enough or he had faith enough to be healed. Friends, God is sovereign. And our wanting or our faith are not the final limiting or de deciding factors in whether or not someone's healed. Despite any lack of desire or faith, Jesus is sovereign and we see this man made well. Now, friends, we need to remember for us that healing is not always this quick and easy. Overcoming your past or your present challenges can be long and hard, but we have to consider the question, are we willing? Do I want to be healed? Do I want to change? Am I hiding behind labels or events and using them as excuses for not moving, not growing, not going? Am I just blaming others, playing the victim, avoiding responsibility? After years of sitting by the pool, whatever my pool is, have I simply become comfortable with the uncomfortable because change is frightening and hard and painful? Do I want to change? Because, friends, the unwanted gift of Jesus this Christmas is the gift of change. You can't receive the gift of Jesus without experiencing some sort of change in your life. Jesus has come to change us. The problem is that the change that Jesus chooses might not be the change that you would choose. You might be hoping that Jesus shows up this Christmas to bring change. You know, change my situation. Change my spouse. Change my children. Change my job. Change my diagnosis. 
And sometimes that's the gift that Jesus will bring. But sometimes he shows up and where he's going to start is changing you. And changing you in ways that you don't particularly want to be changed. Maybe he wants to strip you of unattractive and yet so familiar, comfortable thoughts, attitudes, and actions. Maybe he's calling you from victimhood to strive by the Holy Spirit's power to victory. Do you really want to be healed? Are you willing to be changed however Jesus chooses to change you this Christmas? Because, friends, Jesus has come to change us, maybe in some ways that we want, but also in many ways that we probably don't want. But, friends, Jesus is sovereign. And the changes that he makes are changes that we might not want, but he knows that they're the changes that we so desperately need. So the question is, do you want the gift of Jesus? Will you risk letting him heal you? And change you as he sovereignly desires. Friends, do you want to be healed? Do you want to change? What are you going to do with the gift of Jesus this year? Let's pray. Father, ancient words ever true. Changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Let the ancient words impart. Let your Holy Spirit do his work. And Father, let us be changed. Changed as you know that we need to be changed. Make us willing. Make us more like you. Help us that we might truly receive the gift of Jesus Christ and all the change that he brings. In Jesus' name. Amen.